Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio. I'm Danny McCarthy. Today, I'll be speaking with Benjamin Liu, CEO of the technology company TrialSpark, about the future of clinical research and the innovation coming out of this pandemic. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start our conversation by discussing how you mark the difference between the adaptations we've undertaken as a result of the pandemic versus the innovation for how clinical trials have changed throughout the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what you see as lasting innovation. Great. You know, I, I think with the pandemic, uh, innovation and necessity have almost become inextricably linked. And so with COVID-19, um, a lot of the innovations that people have been talking about in clinical trials became less about innovation, but almost a necessity. And so when shelter in place uh, first hit, something that we saw all pharma companies do, both large and small, were needing to adapt to the fact that clinics might not be open. And we you know, had a bunch of dermatology trials that were running where all of a sudden the site said, you know, we can't really afford to have people coming in and out of these physical locations. So, you know, remote visits, at-home visits, virtual visits, things like HIPAA-compliant telemedicine visits where you're using a combination of software and uh, at-home kind of monitoring tools really became uh, the only way to ensure trial continuity. I think one of the, the uh, things that we saw with COVID-19 is that it really accelerated a future state, just like in a lot of different industries to the present. And we think coming out of COVID-19, a lot of what we'll see is that, you know, as long as kind of data and quality and, you know, patient experience isn't compromised, that a lot of these features will be uh, lasting and enduring features of clinical trials going forward. At the recent DFARM conference, you were in a conversation with Dr. Mark Fishman of Mass General and Dr. Michael Mina of the Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Fishman brought up the need for better diagnostic tools and monitoring for checking in with patients at home. What are some of the opportunities and benefits of in-home patient participation? What opens up when we include patients in the home? And what are some potential points of friction that you see? Yeah, on, on the positive side, you know, I think as Dr. Michael uh, Minna and Dr. Mark Fishman mentioned is, is around access and ease of participation. So the aperture of the patients you can reach almost is exponentially increased, right? And, and in the study that we worked on, you know, this was a study that anyone in Massachusetts could participate in. Uh, not being linked to trial sites and being able to participate at your home, I think has a lot of advantages. And then we've seen that not only in, in, in access, but, but also, you know, in then representation and being able to reach more kind of diverse patients. You know, not having to travel, um, leave work, like all these things I think have, have a huge amount of benefits. And, you know, one thing that we saw was that the patient satisfaction experience uh, can also be enhanced. And so 93% of the patients who participated in, in our study uh, reported they were satisfied or extremely satisfied in the study. So I think a lot of kind of advantages. So some of the challenges are there are certain things that are difficult to collect at the patient home. And so while we were able to, you know, collect blood and using kind of kits and do a lot of kind of remote type of visits at the patient's home, you know, there are certain kind of rating skills that are probably best controlled, you know, in a clinical setting. And so you can imagine in dermatology, for example, there are certain images or imaging tools that are highly sensitive to lights, highly sensitive to you know, how you actually take the images. And, and a lot of these systems are still parked at trial sites. 
and the in-person kind of devices have not been successfully validated yet. And so there's kind of a, a trade-off you know, between access and ease, but also in rigor and controlled environments. You can imagine you know, the, the more degrees of freedom you're at a patient home, the, the more potential kind of variability in all the different things that can be happening there. And so I think limitations include like, can you get consistently the same kind of reads? Though I think the exciting thing is monitoring tools across all therapeutic areas have gotten better and better uh, over time. And, and so we, we definitely see a world where hopefully these, these things will get better and enable uh, more remote visits. In addition to that, I think there's also an opportunity, you know, as Mark mentioned, around better diagnostic tools and even in the current child paradigm as a means to better pre-screen patients. So even before they come in, can you take certain visits, make them at the patient home, and so they don't have to travel in to do an in-person visit if they're clearly not eligible. And if they are eligible, then there's a more compelling reason to kind of go in at to a site. How do conversations with the patient or educating the patient change or adapt when you're relying on them in a different way because of these at-home monitoring or these at-home data collection points? What changes in that relationship to the patient? Yeah, um, I think there are a couple of things that need to be done that traditionally might uh, not be done if this is an in-person visit. You know, when we first embarked on this purely at-home patient study, we actually had a, a pretty big cross-functional team uh, here at TrialSpark. You know, our medical team, our patient operations experience team, and even user designers that really kind of studied every juncture of the workflow of a trial to really curate what are all the different things you're expecting a patient uh, to do without necessarily the luxury of having a CRC or a clinical research coordinator next to them to answer kind of any questions, right? Obviously outlets to answer questions and we have kind of folks that they can contact via phone, but you're trying to almost design an experience that is great, that doesn't necessarily uh, need uh, someone right next to you that naturally allows you to accomplish the, the aspects of the study. So, so what, what does that kind of mean tangibly? Well, you know, we had a bunch of patients across all different demographics, different backgrounds, actually user test the workflow. Every single kind of page uh, on our mobile app and where did people run into issues? Where are the conversion rates kind of lower? To really understand what we can improve. And so one thing that we saw is for you know, people 65 and older, it was really important that the font was you know, bigger uh, and that kind of made kind of natural sense. Rather than have people have to log in using predefined passwords to access some of the information, you know, a more text-based kind of approach uh, was really helpful with access codes texted to them that could have just as much security, but allowed you not to have to run into some of those kind of issues. And then across the workflow of the study, how do you make it very intuitive? Inserts with clearly kind of defined instructions, um, all those kind of things became really important, but what it made it was a lot more scalable. And then we actually didn't see a decrease in data quality and actually saw an increase in retention and compliance um, because I think the world outside of trials has changed, right? We are all used to, I think, really well curated design workflows on the apps that we use, be it a DoorDash or Instacart. And we took a very similar approach, understanding those juncture periods and, and then how we can make uh, the experience as uh, patient-centric as possible. And that really leads into another question. I mean, obviously, we are only about seven months into this kind of rapid 
adoption of more technologies. But with, I mean, you mentioned the work that you and at TrialSpark are doing to kind of analyze the patient journey and really cater to the patient in a different kind of way. What has the retention looked like overall? Is it too early to really tell or do we have some early data coming out about how this looks for patients or how patients are responding to this in terms of staying in trials? It's actually been really high. And, and maybe kind of one thing that we looked at was just even the return of kits. Uh, so out of the people who started in the study, you know, what, what are we kind of seeing? And, it, you know, it's over uh, 90% of our patients have consistently returned their kits and retained, uh, you know, in the study, which, you know, for a lot of these remote visits, that, that's, that ends up being, you know, quite a high number. And, and we see that for, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. One is, you know, kind of the engagement kind of approaches that we've, you know, employed, both in terms of automated, you know, text, email reminders, but also linked to our clinical research staff, um, reminding folks to kind of uh, take uh, the kit. Um, I think if we looked at our patient feedback survey, so, you know, we, we um, were, were able to get responses, you know, to date from over, you know, 700 of our uh, uh, patients, and most of them have had just a disproportionately high net promoter score around the study. And a lot of them have also kind of encouraged, uh, you know, more patients to participate. And so we, we do see, I, I think, big opportunities for retention. And, 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 and to date, I've seen that uh, increase what, what we average uh, kind of see for, for a typical trial. So in your discussion at DFARM, uh, Dr. Minna mentioned, uh, and this is a quote from him, in many ways, we still haven't caught up to how powerful digital technologies can be for medicine. What are the areas of kind of across the board that could be better suited or um, impacted greatly by incorporating more digital technologies? And on a kind of actionable level, what does that look like for trials that want to do this? Yeah, so, um, and, and this is, I think, uh, you know, to, to, to Michael's point, you know, the, the world has changed outside of healthcare. You know, we're all used to really relying on a combination of digital and non-digital tools to greatly facilitate how we live kind of day to day. And, and so, you know, what, when we've, um, you know, as TrialSpark, you know, we, we run a bunch of trials across the entire spectrum, uh, be it with large pharma companies where, you know, maybe kind of the protocols are already preset to smaller biotechs where we can actually partner and, and maybe kind of curate, you know, kind of a, a more end-to-end -end process. And, you know, I think like uh, one thing that we definitely hear a lot from our patients is that some of the traditional trials, it's almost like going into a different world because, you know, kind of they're now expecting the ability to schedule and reschedule via app, via text message, you know, via online portal. And, and, and that kind of contrast between their day-to-day -day lives and outside of their day-to-day -day lives, like outside of trials is just so big. And, and so I think there's some basic things that we think should be incorporated in most trials. And, and one is just treating kind of the patients as a really invaluable stakeholder where you're trying to enhance the patient experience. And so every trial should have you know, companion applications to facilitate some of those things that, that people just kind of expect in the modern age. I think the ability to participate and, and almost kind of to map your own journey is something that, you know, COVID-19 has sort of unlocked in, in some ways where, you know, in a 10-visit study, maybe two visits are in person, four visits are remote, a few are at the patient home. But depending on also a patient's preference, maybe there's different versions of each visit where some of them can be done at the patient's home or in person, depending on 
know, whether the, the um, kind of clinics are, are open or not. And, and so those are, I think, some factors that we're going to see more and more of kind of going uh, into the future. Um, I do think there's a, a bit of a baseline kind of expectation around just the ease of participating, the ease of entering in kind of data, not having to use five different systems, which I think the current world exists where there's like an ePro and eSource and eCOA, you know, then there's a separate EDC and these are all kind of not disjointed. And that's something that, you know, we at ChildSpark have created like end-to-end -end platforms to manage everything on one data layer so that, you know, depending on what was submitted at the eCRF level and what wasn't submitted at the ePro level, those kind of things can help then generate the right response to ensure compliance retention, but also, you know, kind of enhance the patient experience. And that's probably not something that, that we've seen kind of too often employed across the industry. Something that I think is a really important thing to discuss and something that you have touched upon both in this conversation today and also at your DFARM fireside chat was the large focus on diversity that has come out of the pandemic. Why do you think the pandemic has brought diversity so to the front and center of the conversation around clinical research? And how can we be better in increasing the diversity of clinical participants and clinical research going forward? Great, Danny, I'm so glad you asked that question. I believe this is one of the most important kind of issues, not only around clinical trials and, and healthcare, but, but a societal issue. Uh, we all know uh, the issues and the disparities that exist around healthcare access for groups in the US, right? Black, um, Hispanic, Latinx groups uh, disproportionately have less access to care and this affects health outcomes. What typically isn't talked about enough, which COVID-19 has surfaced, is that this disparity also exists in the way we develop drugs. And a lot of our drugs have not been tested on diverse populations. And the consequence means that after drugs have been approved, there could be drugs that just frankly don't work as well in different groups. Uh, so uh, this could be Black, Latinx, people of color, even gender diversity has traditionally been not as well kind of tested. And so, you know, I think what COVID-19 has done, it's, it's really shown a light on this issue. And given that we're kind of, you know, as a society, kind of understanding the magnitude that there are lives at stake, I think COVID-19 has brought to the surface that if we don't get representative samples in clinical trials as we're developing these vaccines and therapeutics, literally it might mean that we're only compounding already an issue around access, but also an issue around are we developing drugs um, that are working on uh, everyone in the world? And, and you know, a big motivation for us at ChildSpark is finding ways to increase diversity in trials. And we've been really proud that you know, across our studies, uh, more than 50% of the patients we engaged have been a non-white or a, a, you know, non-Caucasian. 30% have been black, 9% uh, have been Asian. And out of that other, you know, 50%, uh, around 30% have been Latinx or Hispanic from a, a, you know, white Caucasian kind of group. And we're able to achieve this because part of our model involves engaging doctors in community settings, doctors that practice in more diverse communities that might reflect also the patients that they serve. You know, in the New York area, we have sites in Brooklyn, the Bronx, uh, sites uh, across the country. And then, you know, what we kind of talked about, enabling studies at the patient home, that's something that can really enable access because uh, oftentimes clinical trials requires people to leave 
uh, take time off of work, right, or go travel to a site. And, and that can be pretty challenging to ensure that everyone, you know, equally has the opportunity to, to even have the luxury of taking time off work. So, so we're really excited about all of the trends. We're excited that this is a national uh, spotlighted issue. We're also excited a lot of the executives at these companies have deliberately said, we're going to slow down recruitment to ensure representation to ensure that, that these uh, therapeutics and vaccines are going to be efficacious. And also, you know, side effects, right, is the other kind of thing that unless you study all groups, you not only understand the upside, but also some of the downsides of some of the drugs that we're developing. Something that we're really excited about at DFARM is your upcoming demonstration and webinar about GPT-3, which is a natural language processing model and the implications that it has for clinical research. I would love to get a sense of what that really means for clinical research and how it can impact it and how it can change it moving forward. Yeah, so as many people know, uh, GPT-3 uh, was developed by an extremely talented team at OpenAI, uh, founded by Elon Musk and, and Sam Altman. And it's one of the most, you know, if not the most powerful kind of language model that currently kind of exists that's leveraging AI to essentially like um, do uh, some pretty remarkable things that feels like futuristic. And so, you know, some things that GPT-3 have done outside of the world of clinical trials is, you know, you feed it some text and you tell it to write a poem. Or, you know, one thing we, we had it do in, in an internal hackathon was write an email basically talking about you know a hackathon event and it just wrote the email uh, for it and sounded like a human writing the email you know i think there's tons of things in clinical trials um, that you know even in our hackathon uh, we saw it be a powerful tool so one is literally ingesting eligibility and eligibility criteria and basically then being asked um, and using ai to understand based off of essentially criteria whether someone's eligible Right, and, and that's just without really anything but just kind of um, you know, feeding OpenAI the relevant information and it can tell you what criteria makes someone eligible or ineligible. We also saw that it can do things like um, essentially, again, take a protocol and break down the protocol into essentially uh, the code that generates electronic case report form. Because you, know, you can imagine all the manual tasks or Take a protocol synopsis and then write a fully fledged protocol with just the synopsis, right? And you can imagine what it's doing. It's, it's training the, all the protocols that have been written and it's understanding like what made it essentially a full protocol from the synopsis. And, and so there's like tons of these manual things that can be kind of enhanced with AI. Um, that we're pretty excited about. And so I think in the upcoming webinar, we're actually going to showcase some of these like use cases where, you know, you can take these really abstract kind of themes that currently take a lot of cost and time and how AI can literally help, you know, abstract out a lot of the more repetitive aspects of that uh, in, in, I think, a really exciting way. That sounds incredibly exciting. I'm really looking forward to learning more about that at the webinar, which will be coming out at the end of October. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Benjamin Liu is the founder and CEO of TrialSpark. He will be demonstrating the value of OpenAI's GPT-3 natural language processing model for clinical research in a webinar scheduled for October 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
For more information on that webinar, as well as on our podcast, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thank you so much, everybody.